Welcome to class number two, lesson number two, Beyond Restitution. Today we're going to be talking, huh? Like Beyond Restitution. Okay, yes. <laughs> Teshuva, how we can repent. Well, today, you know, usually the word Teshuva is often translated as repentance. But as we'll see in today's class, that's far from the accurate translation. And therefore, for matters of clarity, we will be using the Hebrew word teshuva when we talk about the concept of repentance, regret, returning, or doing the right thing. So just as an introduction, that's the terminology that we'll be using, is the terminology of teshuva. You know, they say there was this uh, Hebrew school teacher that was teaching its class before Yom Kippur. And as they're getting ready for Yom Kippur, is teaching them the importance of the day where God forgives us and all our sins and all our transgressions are cleaned. And it turns to one of the children in the class and says, So, Jonah, tell me, how does one prepare for the holy day of Yom Kippur? And the kid raises his hand without beating a beat, without missing a beat, and says, Well, you need to transgress so God can forgive on your sins. <laughs> So today we'll talk about what does it mean a transgression? What do we look at it from the legal perspective, philosophical perspective, Jewish perspective, to be able to understand what this means and what restitution and how we go beyond restitution. And we'll start off with an interesting episode that happened actually in a Chabad house in Canada, Montreal, Canada. And I think we actually mentioned this fellow a while back, but here's the story. Text number one on page 38. A speaking engagement by a former anti-Semitic Hungarian politician, Kanznad Zgedi, I probably pronounced the name wrong, scheduled to be held in Montreal tonight, was cancelled after Zgedi was forced to leave Canada. Zgedi is a former leader of Hungarian nationalist Jobbik Party, known for his extreme far-right and anti-Semitic views, until he embraced Judaism after discovering his Jewish heritage. The Chabad of Westmont Educational Center in Montreal had invited Skigeti to tell a story entitled My Journey from Hater Fighter from Hater to Fighter of Hatred. But a video presentation was played instead after Canadian immigration officials forced Skigeti to leave the country. There were rumblings that Skigeti was asked to leave Canada after complaints were made from within the Jewish community. Roughly 200 people attended the presentation, which became heated at times with people standing and yelling. I acknowledge that I have a lot of sins, and this is why I understand those people are not happy with me being here. But these sins I try to rectify not only at the verbal level, but also at the level of my actions, said Skidetti in his tape message. I have to tell the Canadian Jewish community I am exactly such a Jew as they are. I cannot help it as you cannot help it. So over here you have a person who is an outright, if you want to call him the most blatant anti-Semite, he found that he was Jewish. In fact, the Chabad rabbi in Hungary reached out to him when they saw such anti-Semitism was probably coming from someplace bothering him. And he found out that he was Jewish and embraced Judaism. Would, it be ever, would you be ever open to accepting this fellow as a member of the Jewish community in good standing? Yes or no? Anybody? Yeah. If yes... What would he need in order to earn his acceptance of well, return? The problem is that first, I'd like to know what he did. 
Say he was part of the very far right wing Hungarian party, who was an anti. Oh, did he? Oh, you want to know if he did any physical? Very good. Okay. Let's say he did not. Let's say he was just a person who stirred up hatred, which may have caused, because of it, um, hurt to people. He definitely hurt people emotionally. Let's talk about that. Okay. So, what might be the key elements of genuine repentance? When would you say this guy is for real or he's just trying to bluff? What would be your litmus test to know if he's for real? When he proves himself in action. So he proves himself in action, so that's what he wanted to say himself. He's not just a verbal person who is coming back to Judaism, but in action that he started putting on tefillin, he started observing Shabbat, he started doing the mitzvot, and he started also rectifying. So interesting about this fellow, he became the same way he was a big... Uh, activist on behalf of the anti-Semites in Hungary became a big activist for the Jewish people and that's why he went around speaking. So let's see what Maimonides has to say when it comes to repentance. Text number two. Maimonides says as follows. Teshuva atones for all sins even if the one is wicked in their entire life and did teshuva at the last moment. Their wickedness is no longer held against them. This is the meaning of the verse, a wicked person will not stumble due to their wickedness on the day if they do teshuva. In this passage over here, Maimonides is telling us three things. Number one, Maimonides is telling us that teshuva can be done and atones for all sins, regardless of what the sin is. Number two, Maimonides is telling us, even if one is wicked as an entire life and all of a sudden has an, a, or an epiphany that he wants to return, it's also accepted as well, no matter who the person is. And even at the last moment of his life, it's accepted. What do we see over here from Maimonides? There's three things. Everything it can do, anyone, and any time. Just a little example. One of the greatest scholars in the Talmud is known as Reish Lakish. Reish Lakish, his name was Rav Shimon ben Lakish. And when he was in his younger life, he was a, the head of the gangsters, the mobsters, if you want to call it at the time. The head of the mob. And he was the head of the mob to the extent he was so strong that he was able to leap from one side of the river to the other side of the river. And one time Rabbi Yochanan, who was the leader of the Jews at the time, was bathing. And he sees this mobster jumping from one side of the river to the other and he tells him, such strength should be given to Torah. To which Reish Lakish, who was a smart and individual fellow, quipped back and said, such beauty should be given to a woman. Because it's told that Rabbi Yochanan looked as beautiful as Yaakov, looked as beautiful as Adam. So Rabbi Yochanan told him, if you drop your mobster ways and you accept the ways of Judaism, I'll give you my sister to marry. And which he did and eventually became one of the greatest scholars to the extent that after his passing, Rabbi Yochanan was not able to be consoled. That's how great of a tomb. So we see a person who lived mischievous ways and over here he was able to do repentance the Talmud tells us of another story of Allah ben Dudaya Allah ben Dudaya was a person who sinned throughout his life went to every extreme to be able to do any sin he can and finally at the end of his life he heard a voice from heaven and say everybody has the ability to repent and with that he put his head between his knees and cried out loud until his soul left it. yes I told you that story Yom Kippur and until his soul left his body and he was able to, and, he, and it said, and a voice of heaven came out, Welcome, Rabbi Lazar ben Dadaya, to the garden of, to heaven. So we see people, and we see circumstances, where people have gone through that everything, that means teshuva is not just a ritual 
It's not just for ritual transgressions between man and God. When we talk about tshuva, it's also between a physical injury that a person may have done to somebody, a monetary damage that they have done, or even the slightest of transgressions. A person has that ability that they can and they will, that they have the ability to be able to repent for it. Yes? So that's a very good question. So the Talmud actually addresses that. And the Talmud says that, that if a person says, I'll sin, and what's the big deal? I'll do teshuva. We don't help him do teshuva. Now what does that mean? And the Alter Rebbe in Tanya goes on to explain that even though it says he's not assisted in doing teshuva, but if he pushes the envelope, then he can also do teshuva. Now the more sins a person does, the more difficult that teshuva is going to be. Like, for example, the more the person robs, the more monetary you'll have to be able to compensate to the people he stole from, like we're soon seeing. But the bottom line is that what we see from over here is teshuvas on everything, not only between sins between man and God, but also between sins between man and his fellow. As you see this, by the way, if any person looks at the prayer book for Yom Kippur and the confession that we say for the sin that I have sinned, many of them talk about sins between man and his fellow. So the concept of, sin, of asking for repentance or doing repentance for sins between man and his fellow also is the concept of teshuva. Yes? What's the difference between transgression and a sin? Because I think they're two different words in Hebrew. Yeah? There are different levels of sin. I think we spoke about this in one of our previous classes. There's one in advertent sin. That means he did it by mistake. There's one that, which we would call a transgression. One is a sin that he purposely does it, and then there is an advertent sin that he purposely also, at a greater level, with this caring of what's going on, and discarding the concept of Judaism and whatever it may be. There was like an interesting discussion, just that you talk about that, that there was a guy once said, it actually comes from a Hasidic dictum, and says that the only person that can be a true denier in God is a Hasid. So they said, what is that supposed to mean? So they say the story about this town, Apikoyos, it's called in Judaism. I mean, it's called in Hebrew. Apikoyos means a guy who denies in God, more than just an atheist, a guy who says, I don't believe in anything. So they said, you know, if you want to be the town Apikoyos, you want to be the town atheist, let's just call it an atheist for that, you have to go to this Mr. So-and-so, he is the town atheist, and you have to be under his tutelage to learn how to be the town atheist, and only then can you join him. So they said, okay, where do I meet this guy? So they said, go to the synagogue. Huh? No, one second. No, he says, go to the go to the synagogue, and you'll find him there. He'll ask for Yussel. He walks into the synagogue. He's asking for Yussel the atheist. He said, Ah, Yussel the atheist. Okay, you see the guy sitting with the talus and the prayer book. That's Yussel the atheist. So he walks over to Yussel the atheist, and he says, Yussel, you're the town atheist. He says, Yeah. So he says, No, I want to. I want to become the town atheist. So he says, One second. Do you know the Chumash? Do you know the Talmud? She says, no. Why should I know it? I want to be the town atheist. She says, you're not the town atheist, you're the town ignoramus. In order to know God, and in order to go against God, you have to know what God is. Therefore, they said, the only person that can be a true denier in God is somebody that knows God. Who's the one that knows God? The one who studies Hasidism. <laughs> so if you don't know God, how can you deny God? So when we talk about repentance and inadvertent sins, a lot of times today it's more ignorance than absolute arrogance. 
or it's arrogance and ignorance, and therefore they deny in God's existence, but it's not because of an educated decision that a person makes, and therefore most of the cases it's an, inad- it's so an advertent. Even the worst person in the world has okay we get okay let's let let's let's get to that in a moment and that's a very good question Maimonides uses the terminology everyone that means everyone can that could do tshuva and when he says everyone he means that literally tshuva is not something that generally people do tshuva is something that every single person even people who have lived the lifestyle of crime we took an example of Reish Lakish who was a mobster but even these, so you can ask me, what about the evils of society that we know of? So that's a whole separate discussion because the question of doing teshuva in those cases, let's take a Hitler, for example, he would have to go to those six million people that he killed and ask them for forgiveness, which is impossible. So therefore, his teshuva, to a certain extent, is almost impossible. As we're going to discuss a little bit later, from a legal perspective, we can then understand it, but that's a separate but discussion. Also be, then before he dies, like you said. But at the same time, the question is he able to, because part of teshuva repentance is that if you hurt somebody, you have to be able to... So how can you do, anyone else, how can you do it before he dies? So that's a, the, the, it's a problem. So it's not everybody can do teshuva because of, the, because of the gravity of the sin, and we're soon going to see that. We're still going to see just in a practical level, with them, not a Hitler, just even a regular practical level, and from a legal perspective. But that would be the question. But as of now, there's no such crime, let's just take this on the outset, that everyone is able to do it. That means there's no such person who says, no, you're too bad, you can't do teshuva. Uh-huh. Acher could have done teshuva. Even though you heard chutz acher, that means chutz. That it's a whole interesting interpretation about that as well. He believed that it wasn't him when he heard the voice of heaven. And in fact, the chutz means that he would have to do something out of the box to be able to do tshuva. That means every person can do it. The question is only how much they have to do to be able to do it. This is just the introduction, but we'll get into it. We'll see a little more. Number three is any time. It's never too late to do teshuva. Even in a career criminal who's lying on his deathbed can still do teshuva for all his transgressions, and God values it and will accept it. So what we have over here is three of the most important things. Everything, everyone, and any time. The question is now, how do you do it? So here we'll have a little um, short video in showing us how we go about the five steps of Teshuvah. The Torah goes to surprising lengths to highlight the missteps of even its greatest characters. It simultaneously devotes enormous attention to the concept of teshuva, repairing a wrong, a moral or religious sin against God, or harm inflicted by one mortal against another. The Jewish sages distill the requirements of repair into a five-step program. We can think of them as the five R's. One, resolve. First and foremost, we must stop offending. That requires a powerful resolution to avoid repeating our mistake. After all, our greatest demonstration that we recognize our error is achieved through withholding ourselves from perpetuating the offense and firmly resolving to never re-offend. Two, remorse. Our second step is to experience remorse. It is not enough to say, Hey, I made a mistake, but I won't repeat it. All's good. Only sincere remorse can remedy our past. 
Besides, remorse is often critical to avoiding relapse because it allows not only our conduct but also our character to experience change. 3. Restitute. Step 3 is necessary if we cause material, financial or bodily damage. A victim of theft, for example, cannot pay bills with remorse. We need to return what was stolen or pay for its loss. Besides, how can we reap the rewards of remorse while retaining the fruits of the crime? 4. Reconcile. Our fourth step is to heal emotional injury, which can be even more profound than material loss or physical injury. To achieve this step, we must appease our victim and plead for forgiveness, repeatedly if necessary. This cannot be just lip service. We have to truly mean it. It may demand significant effort and sheer bravery, but whereas restitution secure external repair, only reconciliation can provide the internal repair our victim requires. 5. Reveal. Our final step is to reveal everything, our misdeed, remorse, and resolution before our Creator. This must be done in a private and direct conversation with God. It must be done verbally so that our actions, emotions, and decisions merge into a cohesive and concrete narrative that comes alive in our hearts and lives. We can then be confident that our repair has been accepted by the judge of all creation, who sees secrets, hears thoughts, reads motives, and longs for our repair, as we affirm at the climax of the Yom Kippur Atonement Liturgy. You extend the hand to transgressors. Your right hand stretches forth to receive penitence. So as you can see over here, we have the five steps of Teshuvah. Resolution, remorse, restitution, appeasement, and confession. And what these five steps are telling us is that in order for a person to do any, to come to any type of level of Teshuvah, he needs to go through these five steps, and each one of them are important. Let's start with the first one. We talk about resolution or remorse. Commonly translated Teshuvah, it's maybe... Uh, is found that it's translated as regret. But regret is only one step. A person must resolve. Yes, the first step of Teshuvah is, I resolve not to do those sins again. But that's not enough. In Judaism, we don't just look at resolving, I won't do it again. And so what? It means that I regret my past offense, and I make a verbal resolution, as we're going to see in step number five of Teshuvah, which is the confession part, is that I will not do this again to be able to make it concrete because when a person says something verbally, somebody else hears it and he can be accountable to it. But the definition of repentance is not all only about regret and resolving for the future. It's also about restitution, meaning that it's important that a person realizes that when he hurts somebody, whether he takes something monetarily or hurts somebody emotionally, he has to make sure that the repentance, the teshuva over here means that not only does he change his ways, and this is when you ask me about those people that did terrible crimes, that means before the, the teshuva processes are not only about himself, was because you harmed somebody else, you have to make sure that that person is also complete. That means if you have taken something from somebody, and if you have hurt somebody in some way, the only way you can be complete is if they are complete. 
The only way you can be fully recuperated and fully forgiven is if they are for, if they have that forgiveness in them. And that's why, in fact, one of the laws in Jewish law is that when a person asks for forgiveness, he should not be um, too harsh on the individual and be forgiving and allow the person to give forgiveness because if God forbid it was the other way, how would you feel? Because that forgiveness is not complete until the person who was hurt, until the victim feels that the restitution was given to him. If a person doesn't want, and that's the next step what we talk about, which it calls appeasing the victim. Now, sometimes if you, appe- if you hurt the victim so much, and it's not just enough that you're going to give them uh, a few dollars and they'll say, oh, that's it. No, they were hurt emotionally, they were hurt physically, and maybe these people need to get therapy for it, and maybe they want you to pay for the therapy, whatever it may be. But Judaism says that you, the offender, have, or the, the offender, has the obligation to appease the victim. Now, until the victim is going to say, I accept, you're forgiven, it's up to the victim. And that's what you talk about three times, if that's once, then the second time, and then a third time, and in different locations, and maybe find different ways until finally that that person will be able to accept that forgiveness. And finally, the last step of teshuva. Yes, sure, no. And what about the case that you have, I mean, that then comes in Kippur. So even Yom Kippur is only forgiving between you and God. But if you hurt somebody else, that person still has to forgive you. Unless you did all the steps and the person still doesn't, so then that's a a whole separate situation as well. The final process of Teshuvah is where a person actually confesses his crime. Now, he doesn't confess his crime like we know in other religions that they go to the priest and they say their crimes. Who does he confess his crime to? To God. He verbally articulates what he did wrong. And if he actually injured somebody else or if he took money from somebody else or hurt somebody else then he actually articulates what he did wrong in public saying i ask an apology from this individual because what i did wrong because when a person says out loud in public what he did the impact that it makes it may gives a statement that says that this person now is not going to do it again so what we have over here when we talk about the word of teshuva where it tells me in reality, the word of teshuva is restoring something back to its original state. In fact, the word teshuva in Hebrew means to return. What does it mean to return? To restore to its original state that it was. Whether it's a relationship that you have between you and God. Whether it's a relationship that you have between you and somebody else. What you are making sure is that in this case, you are restoring your victim's emotional relationship and well-being. You hurt somebody because you embarrassed them. You said something wrong to them. You hurt their feelings. So you're making sure you're restoring to the way they were before. You're restoring your relationship with the victim or you're giving back to something that you've taken from the person and therefore giving it back to them. What we see from over here is that after the process, what do we have? When a person goes through this five-step process, it's not just that the person gets whether it's the appropriate punishment for his crime or whatever it may be. The Torah considers this fully restored offender even greater than even before he did the crime. Look in the words of the Talmud. The Talmud says as follows. In the place where returnees stand, even a completely righteous person cannot stand. The Torah doesn't just consider this reform offender, okay, now you're completely righteous. But the Torah even says better than that. You're even better than where you started. And why is that? And actually, sometimes it seems like, why is that? One second. 
Why would a person who did something wrong become better than if a person who never did anything wrong in the first place? I would understand, okay, good as new, but why even better? So sometimes if you take a piece of wood, you ever see this new look they have? It's called the rustic look. Like you take a piece of wood and it's worked on and it's back and forth and it's stretched and it's warped. Then you know that that piece of wood can withstand even a fresh piece of wood. Why? Because this piece of character, this that it is, has gone through so much. And because it's gone through so much, it's able to withstand that level of better appreciation. What does this mean? Look at the difference between a plain piece of wood that hasn't gone through any weatherization. It's plain, it's simple, there's nothing much to it. But when you take a piece of wood who has gone through different weathers and patterns and everything else, it may have bumps and grooves and crevices in it, but it's going to hold up to much more. And this is the same thing also when it comes to a soul. It weathers the real-life struggles experience. We all have different struggles and experiences. And because you've gone through it, and because you've done something, so yes, I may have failed at times, but the very fact that now that I stood up and I recognized what I did wrong, I'm better than if I never even tried it to begin with. Because in the person who never tried it, how do you know that they'll be able to challenge it? That's over here, the similar thing can be said about a penitent. The very fact that he tasted, so to speak, the forbidden fruit. He knows what it's like to do something wrong. He knows what the struggles are. He knows what the challenges are. He knows what it means to be on the other side. And now when he stands up to it, you know he's going to be able to stand up to the challenge. While a person who never had a struggle, how do you know they'll be able to stand up to it? Think about any recovering addict of any type of addict that a person may have. Because they know what it means to be, have the low, they're able to stand up to challenges, they're able to be stronger, they're able to stand up to different things which regular person may not. Another advantage is sometimes people are on the right path because that's just the way they were born. It's not necessarily because of their commitment. A person could not do anything wrong. It just so happened to be he was born into a great family, a nice environment, never had any other challenges. His commitment, his knowledge was never tested. This guy, the penitent, the fellow who did something wrong and now did teshuva, was challenged. He may have succumbed to the challenge of it, but now he realized what he did wrong. But now you see what his true commitment is. Because he was tested and he stood up against the challenge. He was able to overcome it. Because he wanted him to overcome it. But he didn't. No, but he didn't give him after he, the option. To he did. He gave an option. That you don't, he told him, don't eat from the tree of knowledge, but he didn't overcome it. And don't forget, before then, he didn't even have the level of, that was only in a minute level of the evil inclination. That only came afterwards. It's interesting that you mentioned that, because the Alter Rebbe has the same question. The Alter Rebbe has a very similar question. He says, why is it that, why is it that when God created the human being, he created us in such a way that he gave us a soul and put it in our body. Our body is the most materialistic, selfish individual. And he gives us a soul of selfless, a piece of God that was doing great on high. Why did this pristine, beautiful soul have to come down into this world and get, maybe get damaged by the body or by the world and the materialism of the world? Okay, so you can say not every soul gets damaged. But chances are, even a soul that doesn't get damaged per se, but it's Going into, you're taking a risk. So Why would God want to do that? Getting damaged even if 
But let it stay on high, let it stay on high and have no problems. Why does God have to take the soul and bring it down into this world and risk it getting damaged from the materialistic world? Just keep the soul on high. But what does the Alter Rebbe tell us in Tanya? On the contrary. What was the purpose, the whole reason of why we were brought into this world? The entire purpose of why we were brought into this world, the mission on the outset, as you see in text number four, says as follows. Why did our soul descend into the physical world if the ultimate goal is to return to heaven? Here it enjoys the radiance of God's presence. Prior to the soul's descent, it was also in heaven and enjoyed the radiance of God's presence. The true answer to this question lies in the usage of in the sages' teaching. A single moment of repentance and good deeds in this world is greater than the world to come. Similarly, our sages say, in the place where the returnee stands, even a complete righteous person cannot stand. Before the soul's descent into a body was undoubtedly perfectly righteous, but as a result of its descent, an experienced truva, the rise of the height, is superior to that of the righteous. The Alter Rebbe over here is teaching us a profound lesson. The Alter Rebbe is telling us, yes, it may be full or succumb to the evils of this world. But as long as it's on high, even though, because the question you may ask, before the soul comes down to this world, and after the soul returns to the world above, it's basking in God's glory. So why does it have to come to the transition in the middle? And the Alter Rebbe explains, because if it would have stayed up there, it would have been stagnant. It wouldn't have reached any greater level. The reason why the soul comes down into this world, in the words of Hebrew are, Yerida Tzayra The descent is order for the ascent. That means it comes down into this world, so it should be challenged in the world, recognize its commitment, stand strong to its commitment, and because of that, be propelled to a greater level than it was ever before. When we overcome a struggle, we achieve a greater level of spirituality. And if the soul would stay on high, it wouldn't have any struggles. This teaches us the concept and the perspective of when we are encountered with struggles and challenges in life. And many times when we are encountered with a struggle or a challenge, and it looks bleak and dark, and the world looks all against us, and everything stands that we're just fighting and fighting and fighting in no end, we have to remember that the reason why God put us here in this world is because of the struggle. And instead of seeing the struggle as a failure, or as a mistake, or as a source of shame, we should realize that these struggles are actually the purpose of creation and embrace these struggles with enthusiasm and recognize that this is exactly what God craved for and this is what he's hoping for us to achieve. Because God wouldn't give us a challenge we can't accomplish. God wouldn't give us something that we can't overcome. And the very fact that we are struggling with it is because this is our stepping stone to propel us to be able to come to a greater place. That's why, if you look, we mentioned the verse in the video. In the Ne'ila prayer, in the last one of the prayers of Yom Kippur, the prayer says as follows, text number five. You extend a hand to transgressors, to transgressors. Your right hand stretches forth to receive penitence. If you look over here, it says God doesn't just suffice with opening the door and saying, do teshuva, come in. But he gives us his hand. So why does it say he gives us his hand and then says it stretches out his right hand? The previous rabbi explained as follows. You extend a hand to transgressors. Your right hand stretches out to perceive the penitence. And the previous rabbi explains why. 
You extend a hand to somebody who maybe hasn't fallen so far. He only needs a hand to be able to get back up. But what happens to a person who feels all the way in a ditch, deep down, full, no hope, no salvation? What does God say? I'm giving you my hand. Not only am I giving you my hand, I'm stretching out. What does it mean you stretch out the hand? You go all the way down to give the guy. But not only the hand, but he gives him the right hand. Kabbalah explains what is the right. The right is generosity. That means you're giving it all. You're not holding anything back. And this is what God's telling the Jewish person and is telling every single one of us. That the right hand, that God is giving us his right hand, no matter how far we may fall that we fell. No matter how bad we, how far we may feel that we're gone. You're never gone. God is giving us his stretching out that right hand. And he's saying, here, just grab onto it. I'll schlep you at it. And therefore, logically, the person may be a person who, you should say, maybe doesn't deserve that opportunity. But God still in His great mercy because it comes from His right hand, generosity, where it doesn't differentiate between whoever it is and says, here, as long as you hang on, as long as you grab that hand, I'll schlep you out. You got to do your part. You got to want to come out. It's not like a free ride. But recognize that that struggle, recognize that that struggle is because God is extending your hand and He's saying, I can make you even a greater place. And therefore, when we talk about this, Judaism tells us that we should emulate God in all His ways. And emulating God in all His ways means that in everything we do, that the same way God enables every single person to do teshuva, to repent, so too in our life, we should also be able to enable people to repent, to do teshuva. And when we come now, of course, as we're talking about the legal perspective of things, the legal system should also allow that level of teshuva. And what we're going to look at today, and our question is, now that we understand the extent of what teshuva is from a godly perspective, what can the legal system do to encourage rehabilitation? Anybody? If we want to be like God and encourage people to do teshuva, what should we do for people who are, so to speak, the monsters of society in every type of way? What can we do for them? Any? Show them a new way. Huh? Show them a new way. Show them a new way? Okay. From a legal perspective, how would you do that? So offering rehabilitative programs as we had in our class, I think we spoke about in the class of the course Crime and Consequence, about the concept of prison system, of what it should be done and how it really should be done with using rehabilitative programs, rewarding offenders that participate in rehabilitative programs and instead of them just sitting and rotting away and getting things for whatever may be. But Judaism takes the value of rehabilitating offenders much further. And as we're going to see, that the leniencies that were introduced by the rabbis in Jewish law actually safeguard to a certain extent criminals in order to facilitate their ability to do teshuva and to be able to guide them in Jewish rehabilitation. So let's take a, ga- a case study. And with our case study, we'll understand what this means. Yes? Well, I'm just wondering in the secular way of throwing someone in jail and saying, if you do A, B, C, D, you get out. But is that real teshuva? Or is that just, hey, I got to do A, B, C, and D? That's a very good question. And that's why we're going to actually see over here what it really means, sincere rehabilitation. 
have a different question. Now it will be in Israel. Take someone like Ari Dell. Keep repeating good things. Keep We're going to get to repeat offenders. We're going to get to it. Okay. So, let's hear the case study here. The case study is as follows. Page 47. Mark was a career criminal with a lengthy history of robberies. One of his many victims was Jack, the owner of a New York construction company. Mark successfully stole a range of construction materials from Jack's business. Among the stolen items, there was an expensive central air conditioning system and a kitchen cabinet set. After lifting them from Jack's property, Mark assembled and installed them in his own home. After decades of crime, Mark's dormant conscience began to flicker into life, eventually resolved to turn over a new leaf, abandon his life of crime and pursue an honest job. Mark came clean about the thefts and set about making restitution for them. He tracked down Jack, who had by now retired in his new home in Los Angeles, Explaining the circumstances, Mark wished to re- provide reimbursement, but Jack insisted that the actual stolen items be returned to him, asserting that it was his right to receive their physical return and not to make do with monetary substitutes. Jack's demand raises a series of questions. And now let's look at the questions here. Question number one. Should Mark, the air conditioning system was intact, but its removal from Mark's house would require him to rip out the walls and ceilings, causing him significant expense. Should Mark be allowed to keep it and instead reimburse Jack for its value, or do we say it was Jack's, you stole it, tough luck, rip it all out and give it to him? Okay. Question number two. Huh? But it it could be that he just, maybe he's just doing it purposely, and we're going to get into it. Okay. Number two, Mark invested time and effort in assembling the kitchen cabinets in his home. As a result, the assembled cabinet was now evaluated to be a greater value than the unassembled raw materials he stole. Can Mark simply pay the value for the original unassembled set? So what is he actually, what's his compensation? Is his compensation giving the actual cabinets which are worth more or just the raw pieces of wood? Three, if Mark is indeed required to return the set, should it be entitled to some compensation for some increased value of the assembled cabinets? Does he get any compensation for it? Four, additionally, returning the actual stolen goods would entail significant transportation because now he's in California. Whose responsibility is it to pay for the transportation? Five, should the fact that Mark unilaterally stepped forward and confessed his misdeed affect his responsibility to make the restitution in any way? So over here we have basically five questions. Question number one, should Mark be allowed to keep the goods and just give him money for it? Question number two, if there was any value that gone up, does he get compensated for the value that he put into it? Number four, whose responsibility is it to pay for the shipping? And number five, should the fact that he confessed make any difference? Good questions, right? Now this I'm sure doesn't only apply in a guy stealing cabinetry, you have this in the Ponzi schemes. You have this in all different kinds of things where people have taken them the money. Let's say a guy that does a Ponzi scheme and has taken the money and reinvested it and bought real estate, and maybe the real estate depleted, whatever happens, how does the restitution work with there? Um, Who's responsible for the restitution? Who's responsible for getting the lawyer? Anyway, okay. We're talking about he wants to give it back. Uh, he wants to give it back. Right? He wants to do teshuva. He wants to give it back, but let's say he can't give it back. That's what we're going to talk about. 
We're going to find out. And here you're talking about physical goods, which there can be some compensation for. What about like murder or something? Okay, so as we mentioned in the big before, let's say if we're talking about it, a case of Hitler, if you want to say. There's an interesting story, I'm not going to get into it because you can't compensate for murder and therefore the concept of teshuva by murder is a whole different story. There's a very famous story where one of these Nazi guards came to Simon Wiesenthal before he died and asked him to forgive him and Simon Wiesenthal was just quiet and he said, I regretted the fact that I told him, how can I forgive you for thousands of Jews that you killed? There's a whole di- that's a whole different concept and you cannot comp- that's why murder is one of those mitzvahs where it says that a person she has to give up his life instead of killing somebody else's life because there's almost no way that he can do chuba for it. But that's a, a whole separate uh, discussion on its own. We're talking that that brings us into a whole different uh, yeah, that's a variety. Of there was a case I was just watching the news last night in Washington State. It was there was this murder from like 1980 or something where the parole board there did not want to hear from the victim that happened to be left alive which by accident or the investigator. They just said, oh, this guy, he's been a good boy in jail. We're going to let him out. The investigator and the person who did survive the, the attack went to the governor of the state and they overruled the parole board. Yeah, so yeah, again... When it comes to murder, it's a whole different, uh, it's a different subject. We're talking about in cases where restitution can be made, technically. But that's part of the question, because everybody that's arrested, right? So if Sorry? Everybody that there is a restitution, right? So if you killed someone... Is there a restitution for somebody that was killed? That's the question. Is it? Okay, so let's find out. Now, what, I have already one more question about it. What about, let's say, you killed someone by mistake? So that's a separate story. By mistake, is there is a concept of teshuva that we find in the Torah then it was a time of exile, but that's a, a whole different yeah, way. Yeah, well, but not back then, today. Even today. So there is a, that was my mistake. The very fact that it was inadvertent, it's a different type of teshuva. Then it becomes a question between you and God, but not between you and a fellow. Because once the person's no longer alive, it's not a, it's an interesting question in, in general. In the Ten Commandments, the last five commandments are between man and fellow, and the first five are between man and God. Commandment about not killing somebody, technically you're killing a person, but what is the crime? I don't want to get sidetracked in this, but what is the crime in actually killing somebody? What are you doing wrong? You're taking away this person's ability to serve God. That's technically what you're doing wrong. You're, you're stealing this person from years of life that he should have had in this world, which God gave him. But you can say, no, if God wanted him to stay, I wouldn't have been able to kill him. Right. I'm just saying. No, I'm, what I'm saying is the concept of murder or somebody being killed. You have to ask yourself, what is the crime? And it is only a crime because God told you that it's a crime. So technically, it's a crime between you and God. Because from a, a logical, to give you an example, the Nazis were the smartest people, they're the biggest scientists, doctors, and everything else, and they came up with a logical reason why they can exterminate six million people. It's wrong. I'm not justifying it, I'm but my point like is... My example is basically, let's say a deer ran into uh, to the street, you swerved the, uh, you swerved the car, and then someone in killed him. So, I, I, so it's not something... Right, I'm saying it's, it was, when we talk about the concept of teshuva, we have to look at the crime. And being the teshuva, in this case, is between you and God, so that could be the teshuva for. That's my point. But let's go back to these cases, and let's try to figure this out. So the starting point of this discussion is actually when we talk about a thief who steals something, 
how he has to return it. And there's three main points in this. Point number one is that ownership is inherent reality. That means the very fact that I own something that belongs to me and you took it away from me, you have done something wrong. And until you restore what I owned, you are considered taking something from me and you cannot have complete teshuvah. Number three, as we're going to see, having the item reminds a person that he has to repent. Now let's see it in the words of Maimonides. Maimonides says as follows. A thief is obligated to return the exact object that he stole. As the verse states, they must return the object they have stolen if the stolen object was lost or altered. The thief must pay his value. Even if a person stole a beam and used it in the construction of his home, Listen to this. Scriptural law would require that the thief tear down the entire building and return the beam to its owner because the beam in itself is an extent and can't and unchanged. What does this mean? That means the simple rationale behind this strict requirement is because ownership is real. It was mine. You took it away. I don't care what you did with it, how many years passed. If you want to do teshuva, you make sure I get the thing back. And therefore, in this case, what is the Torah telling us? The Torah is telling us clearly that if the... Uh, I'm sorry, skipped ahead over here. Now, what is the Torah telling us? Ownership is an inherent reality, and therefore, you have to make sure that I get my thing back. We're going to talk about in Lesson 5 more about the concept of ownership, but the bottom line over here is, as long as the stolen item is intact, that has to be mine. Now you may ask why? What, what, what's the big deal? Why is that part of teshuva? Because what does the word teshuva mean? Teshuva means to return, to restore the item the way it was initially. Where was this item when you took it? In my property. What is the way you're going to get teshuva? Is if this exact item ends back where it was. Giving me money is not the exact item. Giving me money is not what you took. So if you want to do teshuva, the stolen item remains, as long as this stolen item remains in your possession, even if you made adequate compensation, you have not returned the item that's mine. And therefore, I have to complete it in a way that it was returned. Even more so. As long as you own the item, even if you gave me money for it, somebody's going to walk into your house and say, hey, where did you get that big 60-inch TV? Oh, I stole it from what's-his-name's house. But don't worry, I paid him for it. What is that telling you? It's going to say, ah, I can get away with it. The item reminds you of what you did wrong. That you once, so you can say it's a reminder that I shouldn't do it again. But at the other hand, it can tempt you to say, well, I got away with taking this big TV. I should have tried for something better. So that's what the Torah is telling us, that you need to, of course, do it. Now, all this applies only if the exact item has not changed. That means I can give you the exact item the way it is. What happens if the item has changed? Then, of course, I have to give monetary restitution for it. But we're talking about in a case where, or in fact, or let's say like you mentioned before, let's say the guy in California says, I don't want the air conditioning. It's 20 years later. It probably doesn't work anymore. Don't do me any favors. Then, of course, he can give monetary restitution. But what is the Torah telling us over here? Maimonides is addressing a case, of course, and of an extreme case, that even in a case where a person would demolish his house to take out a beam, 
to be able to return it. But look in the words of Maimonides. Maimonides says that this is only a scriptural obligation, not a rabbinic obligation. But before we get to the rabbinic obligation, that means from the scriptural obligation, what would this mean? Let's turn to our case study. Which one of the stolen items, if this air condition is just like a beam, technically the guy would have to rip out the air conditioning from his house, send it to California, and that's the only way that he would be able to do teshuva. Why? Because the air conditioning stole it. And at whose expense? doesn't make a difference at whose expense. It can be at the offender's expense. Why? Because if the guy has to knock down his house to give the guy a beam, of course he has to ship the air conditioning to California. So scripturally, the offender has to do everything in his possibility to be able to make sure that the victim gets back what, he took, what you took from him. Unless it didn't change. Unless it, unless it changed. And if it changed, then he can go. Or if the victim says, I don't mind taking money for it. So if we assume that in the house you had to put two nails into the beam in order to secure it to the uh, rest of the house, is change. that a change of the beam? No, because as long as the actual structure is still there, if we talk about the beam... If he has to rip out the house, that means, let's say, the air conditioning, that he had to run the ductwork and install it, it doesn't, that didn't change. The air conditioning is still the same. You have to build the thing around it. That's not my problem. If you take the beam and cut it off and build the chair out of it. Oh, we're going to get to in a moment. So what do we see from over here? <laughs> so he doesn't care. If that's what the guy wants, that's what you have to give him. Back. An interesting thing. Oh, so actually, just in, when you talk about restitution in, in secular law, one of the biggest problems in, when we compare cases from Jewish law to secular law is that when it comes to restitution, it's almost in every case, and you can tell me if I'm wrong or right, that it's up to the judge. And in many cases, there's no rhyme or reason why the judge will say the person gets X amount of dollars for it. And you can see it in all the latest Ponzi scheme cases, where even in the Madoff case, there were people that billions of dollars were taken and stolen from them, and they walked out with pennies on the dollar. (coughs) Because in most cases, it's just up to the judge, and he determines, or they find an executor. Is that what it's called? An executor? I think it's it's not quite (laughs) up to the judge. I think you bring in people. In other words... What is that called? An an assessor to be able to... I I think probably it has to do with when you made your investment then, you know, where you were in, ta- in the line. That's in the Ponzi scheme. But let's say in a thief steals something. Let's say if somebody comes into your house and steals a television, and the television's long gone. Or let's say he even installed the television in his own house. How many times did I say, take the television from that guy's house and give it back to the original person? Almost never. If the guy's thrown in jail, you're definitely not getting back what, you, what the guy took. The guy's just going to go to jail. Right? I mean, there, there are sentences with restitution. I mean, they do have restitution. How they come to it exactly, I'm not certain because I've never been involved. I'm saying, just saying, in most cases where the guy's thrown into jail right. because of his stealing, let's take even Madoff, very famous case, right? Yeah. It, there was an estate that they took the money from. Value. It was a monetary value. Huh? But I'm saying it was a huge monetary value that he right. stole. Because he was in jail, his estate depleted. So the people that he stole from didn't got back probably pennies on the dollar of what they were stolen from. I think you'd be surprised how much they actually got. I saw, I'm saying, actually. <laughs> I mean, some, some of them got back a lot. But it was up to one person to make that decision. I forgot the guy, I think he's actually a Jewish lawyer, Joseph something, uh, who was the, he was the, ex- I think it's called executor, of that, for the judge appointed him to be able to sell off all the assets. Sell off all the assets. 
Not only that, or let's take even a thief. Let's just take a regular common day thief who, let's say not shoplifted, but came into your house and stole jewelry worth of $20,000. They take that thief and they put him into jail for 10 years. The chances of that guy paying back the $20,000, even if the judge does say he has to pay the $20,000, where is he going to get the money from? Who's going to hire him? Where is he going to get it? Unless he steals from somebody else to be able to pay back the restitution. Well, that, well that's why I think in a Ponzi scheme there's money there. In a Ponzi scheme there's money. But let's say in a, a thief that just robs a jewelry store. Somebody uh, robbed your house. Or somebody robs somebody's house. You're, most cases, you're not getting back your money. But what did the rabbis enact? So this is all scriptural. And however, and my mind is clear to write, scriptural law says that. And the reason is because in many cases, the rabbis were able, especially when it comes to monetary laws, the rabbis were able to enact laws that would change or help the situation. And what was in this case, which is as follows. And this is one of the examples. Text number seven. Rabbi Yochanan ben Gudgada testified that there is a rabbinic enactment regarding the case of a thief that a stolen beam into a building, the victim of the theft is only entitled to monetary compensation. This was enacted for the benefit of the penitents. In Hebrew it's called Takonas Hashavim. Rashi explains and says as follows. If we are to require thieves to destroy their buildings for the sake of returning the actual stolen beam, they will be discouraged from doing teshuva. What does this mean? Now, what did the Torah do over here? What did the rabbis do? They enacted a law. They modified a law of the Torah because they wanted to incentivize people to do teshuva. Now, this incentive is beneficial for the victim and beneficial for the offender. It's beneficial for the offender so he should be able to do teshuva. And it's beneficial for the victim that he should be able to get his money back. He may not get his actual beam, but he'll get a monetary compensation. What we see over here is that the rabbis have changed the law in a way that we should be able to allow this individual to be able to do teshuva to repent. That when we talk about restitution, if we were to make it too difficult for this individual and say, chop down your house, break down your house and give him the beam, how many people would step forward and say, I stole that, I want to do it. I want to return it. In most cases, they weren't. And therefore over here, what they did was they modified it to allow the thief to substitute it for monetary compensation for the stolen item. This principle applies in any similar case where the stolen item would cause a significant expense for the thief. And therefore, if we go back to question number one, and our question one over here was, while scriptural law will say, yes, you have to pull out your air conditioner and ship it to California, what would the rabbi say in this case? The rabbis would tell us, no, because only monetary compensation would be fine. Send the guy a check for what the air conditioning and the cabinets were worth, and all is good. Right? That's question number one. Were they worth back then, or were they worth today in the new one? What do you because mean? let's say he bought them for $2,000 oh, back Oh, that's then. an exact but next now, question. One second. That's the next question. That's the next part. Now, let's take the next step. What about the profits? Another instance where the rabbis were protecting the thief, we're in a case where there were profits on the stolen item, where something went up in value. And because we want to encourage the thief to do teshuva and return the stolen item, what do we tell him? 
return it as is, pay for the amount that it as is, and even though it went up in value, you do not have to pay for the up for the for the amount that it went up. Oh, let's find out. So let's see. You're gonna see. Text number nine. Enhancement of the actual body of the stolen item belongs to the thief. Now what does this mean? So before you you attack me, you'll say, what does this mean, enhancement of the actual stolen item? Does that mean if I stole gold 20 years ago, and 20 years ago gold was worth $1,000 an ounce, and today it's $2,000 an ounce, he only has to pay $1,000 an ounce? No. What does this mean? The rabbis award them the added value in order we want to give the thief some type of incentive. So let's say there's different types of added values. There the rabbis awarded them added value in order to encourage teshuva. But what does this mean? There's different types of added values. There's added value which comes because of the market. So for example, if I have a stolen bar of gold, it goes up in price. The item itself is now worth more. The thief did not do anything to this gold to make it worth more. He just kept it for me for storage. And therefore, right now, he has to give, either he gives me the actual gold the bar that he stole, or he pays me for what it's worth today. But then there's another type of added value, which is the item itself now is worth more. For example, if somebody take a piece of wood, and he takes from this piece of wood and he made it into a table. If you were to buy the wood in Home Depot as a piece of wood, it cost you $5. Now that it's made into a table, it's $25. What does he have to pay? So over here, the rabbi said, who added the value? The thief. And therefore, he only has to pay what he stole, which was a board of wood, and he only has to give him $5 for it. Now what happened if you go back to the recognition of the depreciator? Because an air conditioning from 10 years ago is not worth like an air conditioning oh. today. But the bottom line is that he stole an air conditioning. Yeah, no, he stole the value of an air conditioning. So depreciation is your problem. So the, what I'm asking is, you said he gave him the value of the original one. But what about if it went down now? And you can get one. So if it was worth then a thousand dollars, you just need to give him a thousand dollars, not to look for one. Or give him back the air conditioning. So we so what we have over here is if the so we talk about the different types of so over here, in this case, when we talk about market value, we don't say the penitent acts apply and therefore the thief does not get to keep the added value. But in this case, where he does get the added value. But then there's another type of um, change. Change that can be reversible versus change that's irreversible. When we talk about the change that the, that the thief gets to keep, that's talking about a change that's irreversible. I take a piece of wood and I make it into a table. But what about a change that's reversible? For example, text number 10. Code of Jewish Law states, if the stolen item was altered by the changes reversible, such as stolen earth fashioned into bricks, the thief cannot keep it and must be returned. However, the added value of the item does belong to the thief, and the original owner must pay for the difference. So over here, for example, the guy stole cement. He took the cement and made it into bricks. The bricks can cost you $2 a brick. The actual bag of cement costs you $20, but from it you can make 100 bricks. He only has to pay him for the value, and he's giving him now all the bricks. He has to pay him for the difference. That means a thief gets the profit for making it into bricks. Why? 
because the stolen materials here are reversible. They can, if he wants, he can go and dissolve it to make it back into sand. And therefore, in this case, well, that would be the same situation, let's say if the person steals raw metal, raw gold, and he makes it into a ring, he gives them back the ring, and everything is fine. Because even though now that it's made into a ring, it's worth more than the actual raw gold, but because it's reversible, you can melt it down and you can make it back to what it was, so therefore, the, all these things are done to encourage a person to do teshuva. What we see over here is that when we talk about the penitence enactment, takonis ashavim, that even though the thief is still required to return the stolen materials, the owner over here has to pay the thief the difference between the materials that were stolen and the returned product. And of course, if the victim in this case prefers, he says, you know what, I don't want to steal with the product, just give me money, then of course he can take money, but that's his prerogative. So let's go back to question. Yes? If it's reversible, so if it's reversible, then I'm going to say that it doesn't that it does apply, and therefore the victim will have to pay for the difference of that it went up in price because of the reversible change. So, so if he made the ring out of gold, and he wants the ring, let's say he wants the ring, the victim will then have to pay for the value that now is the ring because it's a ring, so not a plain piece of gold. So Correct. Works, yes. Okay. So again, if it was the gold was worth a thousand dollars, now the ring is worth two thousand dollars. So give them the ring, the because it's a ring, not because the price of gold went up. Yeah, because it's a ring, he needs to pay the thousand dollars because now he made it into a ring, or he can tell him just give me my money. Or to give another the value of the yeah. Over here we see this will answer our question now to case number two and three, where Mark would be required to return the items, and Jack would have to reimburse him for the added value. What were the items that he took? Was the cabinet? When he took the cabinet from him, what was the cabinet? They were just plain pieces of wood. This mark made it into a cabinet. If you want the cabinet, pay him for the price of the cabinet. Now, what about transportation costs? Shipping. What about if he doesn't want the payment of difference? Then I'm just paying him the money at the price of the wood. But if he doesn't want to accept only the money? What do you mean doesn't want? That's the draw. Want the red, it uh, uh, that want it the doesn't red. exist. I can't. I, I have to take it, I take so apart the wood. Can, but the insist. So then it doesn't matter, you can insist. We say the law no, is the law. I mean, if he says he wants the original one and doesn't forgive you until... until he, you so therefore, the, over here, the Torah, this is exactly what we're saying, that the rabbis have insisted that even though you were a victim, something was stolen from you, in order to incentivize a person to do tshuva, we say that you're not entitled to that. So don't care about the tshuva. But the Torah, it tells us, as, as we're soon going to see, as the Torah tells us, as a person, as a Jewish person, we have an obligation to incentivize people to do tshuva. So even if we were victimized, even though we were taking something from me, I have an obligation to help that person do tshuva. So, because so, before you just said that if you steal, the, let's say, steal the gold to make the ring, Correct. the thief then has to pay the value of the ring. But this says... No, 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 the victim pays the difference of the ring. That means, that's what, if I take a piece of gold and I make it into a ring, if they became more because the value of the gold went up, then the thief pays it. But if it's because it's made into a ring it costs more, then the thief pays. Then the victim, I'm sorry. So let's go back to our case. Over here he wants the cabinets. You want the cabinets? Pay for the price that I cost me to make the wood in the cabinets. Or else I'll give you plain wood back, or I'll pay you monetary cost of whatever the wood costed. 
Now let's talk about another case. When we talk about the application of this Takanus Hashavim in a case where it's stolen goods. Stolen goods that were shipped and now I have to ship it to another place. In the U.S. legal system, any collection of costs associated with return of a theft is passed on to the defendant. That means if I have to hire a lawyer, I think according to law, if, I, if a person loses a case and the thief is obligated to pay even for the lawyer fees. Is that correct? Usually not, not usually. I mean, lawyer's fees not usually in cases. You know? Whatever it would take for the person to get back the, the money if uh, you lost the case. I'm not, I'm not certain. It's maybe certain lawyer fees. I, I know in England for frivolous in lawsuits. In England, yes, maybe. In America, usually you don't pay lawyer's fees unless there's a statute that allows for lawyer's fees. But let's say any ca- anything that would take any cost associated to returning the theft is automatically passed on to the defendant. That means the victim does not have to pay for any cost of the or whatever it makes of means. Let's say if it's shipping, wire transfers, anything of that nature, in American law it does not. In Jewish law, however, you, I, just grab it. I just usually in. Uh, American law, for example, if you say I lost hundred thousand dollars and you pay the lawyer, you either pay the lawyer hourly or you tell the lawyer if you recover it, you'll get a certain percentage of a hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. So in let's say there's a case of um, let's say your car gets towed, right? And you have to pay in pound, you have to pay for the poundage, right? If we're impounding for towing, it's the person the victim the person who broke the law has to pay for it. Yes. If somebody stole somebody else's car, and because of that it got impounded, <laughs> then uh, technically speaking, the defendant is the one that has to pay for the towing and the impounding. If yes. I have, I think, a case study over here, I can tell you. Uh, yes, technically yes, I think there's a case that was brought. No New York, the poundage is 5%. The losing defendant is usually required to pay the plaintiff's cost to execute the judgment. So the judgment usually is increased by 5%. See New York CPLR. Um, I'll give you the 8011-12. <laughs> that says that he has to pay for the defendant's lawyer. My other question about all these cases is, for example, with the ring where the uh, thief takes the gold or whatever makes it into a ring. He wouldn't be able to make anything without the, the thievery, the initial theft. So to me, he should be responsible to pay the whole thing because because let's assume that he couldn't afford to pay to buy the gold to make the ring or, the, or whatever. So to me, it's like saying he, he gets the benefit of uh, correct of paying zero to get the uh, the material he needed in order to make a hundred. So he's entitled to the let's say it was worth fifty. So he's entitled to the other. 50. So let me let me explain. It's I'm not a question of he's entitled. It. Yes, I understand where you're coming from, and that he brought it up before as well. Scripturally, you're right. He shouldn't get anything. You stole something, give it back. Tough luck. What's now happened with it? Even if you made it into a ring. The Chachamim, the sages, have enacted something called Takanas Hashavim, which means a penitent enactment. That we want to incentivize people to do Teshuvah. And why do we want to incentivize people to Teshuvah? We'll get to in a moment. But the bottom line is that we are looking for incentives that when a person stole something, even though technically he deserves nothing, because he stole it. This is not yours. Don't claim ownership on it. But the rabbis came along and says, we want to incentivize people to return their lost items because if they're going to steal it, they'll just run into hiding and not return anything at all. We want them to do teshuva. Therefore, we're going to give him perks. We're going to give him benefits, even though he's not entitled to it. That's exactly a good point. Sorry? Claim faith. 
Oh, and we're going to soon. So now we have another case where this uh, applies about the shipping. Jewish law introduces a leniency for the offender in a case where he confesses for their wrongdoing. Text number 11. People that stole from one another and confessed on the theft are not required to pursue the owners in order to return the stolen item. The confessed thief may hold on to the item, notify the item owner, and wait for them to come and collect it. Now there's one caveat here. That's if he is still in the place where he stole it. If let's say the thief runs away to Timbuktu and says, okay, I stole your item, come get it. That doesn't work. If you stole it in New York and he's still in New York and he announces, I stole your item, I'm willing to return it, even though you're in Australia, but if I stole it from you and I stole it from you in New York, if you want to get it, you've got to come here and get it. If who is in Timbuktu? Then he has to come and return it. Then he has an obligation to return it. So what we have over here is, as in the case of the construction beam, all these things are done, even though an increased value happened. The leniency in this case is, why? Because we want to get and entice this person to facilitate his teshuva. So let's go to the case of uh, in the transportation costs. The requirement to pay transportation will discourage a thief from coming forward, and therefore to make it easier to confess, the law doesn't require them to foot the bill. So in our case study, in question number three, Jewish law will answer. Jewish law will say, Jack would have to pay for the bill. If you want that 20-year-old air conditioned down to you in California, pay for it. Why? Because it was stolen in New York. You moved to California. You want in California, in New York, I give it to you. You moved to California, that's your problem. You have to pay for the shipping costs. Why? Because again, these are leniencies to be able to incentivize a person to do teshuva. Just imagine there was something like that happening. And I, I already the argument between them. <laughs> is Jack yeah. the thief or the owner? Jack is the thief. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Jack is the owner. Mark is the thief. Okay, so yeah. why would Jack have to pay for it? Because according to Jewish law, transportation costs are not... Because he's far away, he's a victim, and the victim has to pay for the transportation costs. Unless, of course, Jack can say, give me money, and wire him the money, and that's it, he has no problem. You want the exact goods. He wanted the actual air conditioning and the beam. He wants the actual cabinets. If you want the actual cabinets and air conditioning, and you live in California, you have to pay for him to ship it to you. What happens if he doesn't have it anymore? Let's say the air conditioning broke. If he doesn't have it anymore, then he has to pay money. That we're not talking about. If he doesn't have it anymore, that's clear that he pays the monetary. That's no argument. We're talking about that the actual item exists. And because going back to one second, it's going back to the actual rationale. Because the concept of teshuva is that you're returning the returned actual item. If I don't have the actual item, it's not teshuva. I'm giving you money for it. Where that becomes the actual item. But, he has the, but Mark has the actual item. In New York. Why is in, in New York. California. No. Mark is in New York. That's where he stole it. Okay. Jack moved to California. Jack finds out that Mark stole it, and now he wants him to ship the air conditioning to California. So because Jack moved away? Correct. Correct. Okay. And not only that, because we are part of Takanas HaShavim, is part of our leniency to entice a person to do Teshuvah, is that we tell him you're not responsible for shipping. So if Mark was the one who moved away, and Jack was still... And then Mark will have to pay for it. Correct. Okay. Now, there are some exceptions. Where are the exceptions? Let's go a step further. So one second, you know yeah. what you said now. If the, one, the thief would move far away, you would need to pay for the shipping. 
Correct, because the thief is no longer there. But we're talking about in a regular case, let's say they're both there or, one, or the victim of the way, because it gets into more complications and so on. How much and what we are on how. Text number 12. There was an incident which a certain person sought to perform teshuva. His wife said to him, empty head. If you do teshuva, even the belt you are wearing is not yours. The fellow refrained and did not do teshuva. At that time, the sages declared that if thieves wish to return what they stole, their victims should not accept it from them. If the victim nevertheless do accept from the thieves, the sages are displeased with their conduct. Now this is a very broad statement. What is it telling us? What happened here? A guy says, I want to come clean. What does his wife tell him? You come clean, you don't have a pair of pants to wear. Nothing you have is yours. So what did the sages say? Don't accept it from a person who is a rampant thief. What does this mean? There's a number, what's going on over here? It seems like that the victims are told to forego on compensation when they are entitled to compensation. That's what the sages are saying. So let's see a little bit what Code of Jewish Law tells us in a few of these caveats here. Text number, one, text number 13, page 56. When established thieves, career criminals, for whom teshuva is difficult, wish to do teshuva on their own initiative, if then if the stolen item is no longer existent, their victim should not accept compensation from them. This is to ensure that such thieves will not be deterred from doing teshuva. However, if the thieves insist that they wish to go beyond the letter of the law and pay compensation, the victims are not cautioned against accepting it. Read that statement and tell me what you find wrong with it. Or what? telling them not to accept it, but if they're insisting, you, can, you need to accept it. A step more than that. What is it saying here? If you are a regular criminal, that means you're a um, career criminal. This is what you've done your whole life. We're going to make it easier for you to repent. It's a one-time offense? No, 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 no. We're going to make it difficult for you. How does that work? It seems counterintuitive. Would it be rather making things easier for a person who did a one-time offense rather than somebody who's a career criminal? Why would the Torah, why would Code of Jewish Law have a dispensation for a person who's a career criminal, but on the other hand, for a person who's a one-time thief? Not at all. Over here we say a one-time thief if you're a one-time thief and you step forward and you say, I want to pay back, but I don't have it anymore, no, I'm not going to take your money. I'm sorry, a, a career criminal, I'm not going to take your money. One-time thief, I'll take your money. Why is that? So what we have over here is, a career criminal comes forward on his own, stolen item is no longer in existence, doesn't legally obligate the victims to refuse, the thief is encouraged not to make use of that enactment. What is this telling us here? So the logic behind it is as follows. If a person steals something one time and returns it, okay, he stole one thing, he returns it, life moves on. Does his life change because of it? No. Did he lose? He lost one th- He had something, he took it incorrectly, he returned it, he goes back to normal. 
But if your whole life and everything you wear is stolen, and everything you have is stolen, and I'm going to tell you to return everything you have, what are your chances of returning it? None. What are your chances of doing teshuva, of stopping your career? None. A person, think of it this way, a person who is so sunk into stealing, he's a kleptomaniac, knows no life other than stealing. Why should he do teshuva? He doesn't own even his own belt. He's never going to do teshuva. It happens one time. Okay. You'll get off. You'll return it. Life moves on. When we talk about even in the modern legal system, even if a career criminal is caught and is made to pay, the victims will usually never see their money. Why? Because this career thief has nothing that belongs to him. Take a career criminal that his whole life was only stealing. What's his? Make restitution from what? The guy never had a real job in his life. You're not going to get your money. There's no chance that this guy isn't going to earn enough money to pay back everything he's stolen. So what's going to stop this person from stealing? What's the incentive for him to stop stealing? What's the incentive for him to start to, to, to do teshuva? The rabbis realized that, and therefore the rabbi said, if this career criminal comes and says, here, take it back, don't take it from him. Let him do teshuva. Say, keep it and stop your ways. Because that's the way a person will do teshuva. The second caveat over here is, when can this happen? Only if he comes on his own and says, I want to do teshuva. Not if he's apprehended and he's arrested and he says, okay, I want to change. Because what's going to happen then? Because then he's not going to return it. He'll go back to his ways. So what happens if he did it, everything is good and nice and good? Ten years later, he does it again. Huh? Okay. So then, all, then he can do again teshuva? So generally... What does it mean since we, at this point we have to look at a person right now. We are not prophets. We have to judge for a person for what we see in front of our eyes. And if we think he's sincere, that he is now confessing on his sin, which is already a step, that in itself gives us a level that we should no, be able to... Confessed, everything is good. So, then we, so then we have to start again. Then we have to start again. But over here again, this is also talking about when the items that he have the stolen items, he no longer has it. If he has the actual television that he stole or whatever it may be, the logic is because there's a concept of truth, he's going back to his original state. If the stolen items are simply in his possession, all he has to do is go over to his wall, take off the television and give it back to you. But if he no longer has it, we don't make him to go buy a television and give it to him. If in 10 years from now, he starts accumulating more items through stealing, then we make him return them. We see that he never repented. You understand? So if we see that he went back to his real ways, that means he never did tshuva. So that's what I'm asking. So then we never see that he never did tshuva because he's still stealing. And that means he never confessed because he's still stealing. He reconfessed on this item and not on something else. So what we see over here is something very clearly. Another very important point is that it doesn't legally obligate the victims to refuse. If you're a victim, God forbid, of a person who stole something from you and he's a career criminal, even though the Torah says, be nice to him, you're still entitled to get your money back. And you can still say, I want it back, I don't care. And even though it may be a little difficult for you to do teshuva, but I'm still entitled to get it back. The rabbis discouraged it, but at the same time, they couldn't make it legally binding. Why? Because you are entitled to get your thing and he's obligated to pay up. 
Number five, even more so, the thief, even though the victims shouldn't accept it, but he should persist and give it back. If you look in figure 2.3, it goes through the steps. Number one, only for a career thief. Number two, only if the thief came forward on his own volition. Number three, only if the stolen item is no longer existent. And number four, fifth, victims are only advised not to accept, but they are required not to refuse. They're not required to refuse. And number five, it's nevertheless praiseworthy for the thief to make restitution. Let's go back to our case in question number five. Mark's victims would be encouraged to refuse to accept restitution. Mark would be praised for insisting on making restitution. That means even though Jack can refuse, Mark should be the one to step forward in giving it to him. What we see from over here is something very unique about the concept of Teshuvah. The importance that the Torah gives to the value of Teshuvah. That by instructing victims, even though you're saying, technically speaking, I owe the money, why should I, do, why should I forgive the money? Why should I give it up? But the Torah is telling us over here that the victims should forgive on the damage that they suffered. It's expressing a concept that Teshuvah is not just a person's private business between him and God, but every single Jew is part of a unit that we care for each other and we have to help each other. And if I have an opportunity to facilitate and help a person do teshuva, I should do my part and help that person do it. Not only that, Jewish law is not dismissive on the very fact that real damage is caused by theft or whatever it means. And therefore, it puts it in a guidance. And we're not saying that we're naive and say, what, this person took the money and he's going to go and steal again because of it? And therefore, there are certain restrictions and exceptions in it. And therefore, Jewish law also at the same time cherishes tshuva and realizes that we have a practical goal set here, which is to facilitate this person to do teshuva, but at the same time, make sure it's implemented within a proper legal system that not the victim and not the offender should be able to lose out. One of the interesting modern applications of this concept, where we talk about penitent enactments, Let's see if anybody can think of a modern application to today. It's very common today. Modern application would be in the gun laws and in the IRS tax laws. There's something called, I'm sure you know, that the government says that if you turn in your, what is it called, uh, the policy of gun payback programs, people that turn in the guns, the government gives them money for it. Or there's a tax amnesty programs that if a person hasn't paid tax for a long time and they come forward and they say, the government says that we will, um, uh, these modifications that the law in order to facilitate these people of having it. So when we talk about these secular type of penitent enactments, again, these are different things. We're tax, tax amnesty program in many states. Under these programs, people have been illegally dodging paying their taxes, come forward, they step forward and they say, and they give them, they give them a certain amount of money they have to pay per dollar, and then the, everything else is forgiven, and they not have any criminal penalties. The same thing is also a lot of times the FBI would work with a person to be an informant or whatever it may be to step forward to do something else for them and they will forgive them on other things as well. well tax text number 14. Not necessarily. No, no, not by tax amnesty. And here, text number 14. Over the past decade, at least 29 states and the districts of Columbia have con- conducted tax amnesties. Though the state amnesty varied in, in terms of objectives, features, and results, and some generalizations can be made, the programs were originally des- were generally designed by state lawmakers to achieve at least one of the three objectives. Number one, 
reap a one-time revenue, two, increase future revenues by adding the names of non-filers to state tax rolls, and three, improve the tax compliance rate. In order to accomplish these goals, the states usually abated both criminal and civil penalties for those who have failed to file under standard liabilities and the taxpayers pay delinquent taxes. By revenue raised, New York's program was the most successful, generating a revenue of high over $401.3 million. New Jersey's program followed by bringing $179 million. Other top revenues was California, Illinois, Massachusetts, pulling in 154, 152, 83, respectively. And the other end of the spectrum, more than half of the, ten st- of the states which conducted amnesties raised less than $10 million each. Given the broad objectives of the many state amnesty programs, revenue raised is not necessarily the sole indicator of success. To many analysts and lawmakers, the long-term effect of the equal concern, many states hoped amnesty would increase their tax base by adding more names to the tax roll. Indeed, one study showed that states implementing tax amnesty enjoyed an annual tax revenue growth of 0.5% higher than did not amnesty states. Another aim of most amnesties was to raise the overall compliance rate. Preliminary studies indicate this goal was also achieved. The bottom line is that if you look at what's the purpose of a tax amnesty, what was the reason of these enactments? It was very simple. The reason why the government puts a payback program for a gun payback program or whatever it may be is it wants to benefit. It wants to make more money. It doesn't care for the person that's paying back the money. It knows that people are not paying taxes. We are going to get you somehow. We don't have enough IRS agents to be able to hunt down every person that's not paying their taxes. So therefore, they create a tax amnesty program. And look, it brings in $195 million. The purpose of it is only... Because, it, and the same is with the gun, gun amnesty program. We want to get guns off the street. There's a bunch of illegal guns around. We, each, we offer $500 for each one. We know we'll get guns back. We know we'll tell you we won't criminalize you. We got our guns back. However, the Jewish value of when we talk about amnesty or helping a person is because we're looking to help this individual. We want to be able to get this person to do teshuva. And therefore, this offender did something wrong. And instead of him being punished, this crime, however, we want this teshuva, and that means Jewish law values the rehabilitation of a person over the crime that he, over a punishment of a crime that he should get. That means instead of punishing this person and let him rot in prison for 20 years and nobody gain anything from it, let's take this individual, find something that we can encourage him to grow on, to become a better person, and he should not steal again. I okay, and therefore we're asking people collectively to chip in, which means to facilitate it, and thereby forgive on some profits or some other maybe rightfully owned gains that you should have. Why is this? Because the purpose of the legal system and the Jewish legal system is not about just catching offenders. The purpose of this legal system is not about just penalizing people for something they've done wrong. Because we view every single person with a spark of godliness within himself a pristine level of hustle that an individual has. But at times it gets covered, it has schmutz on it. And you got to schlep it out of the dirt. you got to find it, you got to clean it. And sometimes it needs something to be able to help it get clean. And over here, this person, this offender themselves, need, is looking, is crying for a way to be able to connect to God. And therefore Jewish law's interest is in the, is in the interest of taking this offender and trying to rehabilitate him to benefit him, motivating the Jew to be able to do teshuva, and therefore we're going to give him some leniencies because to be able to reveal within himself his true identity, which is not to steal, which is not to pillage, not to take things, 
but to be able to be and live a good life. And therefore, when Jewish law looks at something, it believes that the offender deserves the opportunity to do it, and we have an obligation to facilitate it, even if it means modifications in our legal system. So even though there's scripturally, we should say, rip the beam out, give the guy back what he owns, but Jewish law says, is that going to help his neshama? Is that going to make the person not steal again, or is that going to make the person continue to become a career criminal? What is the long-term effect? What are you going to gain from it? And therefore the rabbis come along and say, you know what, we're going to institute something called Takon Sashavim. How can we incentivize people to do the right thing? And all of us collectively facilitate that by forgiving on some profits and allowing this thief to recognize and say, yes, when you're ready to come. <coughs> and not that we have to catch you. Because if we have to catch you, that means you're not ready to do teshuva. But if you confess... And you come forward and you say, yes, I want to change. The Torah says, we are here to help you. We are here to make that happen. <coughs> Next week, as we talk about feeling responsibility towards another, but how far does this responsibility extend? And next week, we'll continue about how much do we get involved in somebody else's business. Lesson two, beyond restitution. One, the Jewish concept of repentance is known as Teshuvah. Teshuvah can be done A, for everything, B, by everyone, and C, at any time. Two, Teshuvah entails completely restoring the world to the state it was in before the transgression was committed. Therefore, in addition to regret and personal change, Teshuvah also requires financial restitution and emotional appeasement. 3. Jewish values call on us to assist wrongdoers along the path of Teshuvah. To this end, in cases of theft, Jewish law A. allows substituting monetary compensation rather than return of the stolen item when its return would cause significant expense. B. provides a thief with compensation for investments he made to increase the value of stolen items. And C places the cost of transporting returns on the victim of the theft. 4. When a longtime thief comes forward and wishes to do Teshuvah, the Jewish legal system counsels the victims to not accept compensation in order to ease the process of Teshuvah. 5. The approach of Jewish law is motivated by Judaism's perspective on the value of Teshuvah. The belief that the offender deserves the opportunity to do Teshuvah and that we all have an obligation to help facilitate it, even through modifications in our legal system. Next week, same time, same place.